Let's pray. Father, I thank you and I give you praise for bringing your people and gathering them here today to walk through the story of our faith um, from giving you praise to confessing our sins and being assured of pardon. I pray that you would open our uh, hearts of your people, the ears of your people to hear your word. I pray that you would stay the rain and the storm from this yard uh, while we finish our service. And Lord, I pray that you would, by the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together, be pleasing your sight. Oh Lord, in your name I pray, amen. John 14, is from where our passage is this morning, is the beginning of Jesus' final teaching in the Gospel of John, what scholars will call the last discourse. Here, Jesus knows that he is nearing the end of his life, and the last discourse contains his final teachings, exhortations, encouragements, and prayers for his followers. These chapters of John are leading to the cross, and Jesus is saying goodbye to his followers, while also inspiring them with hope as he promises the Holy Spirit, reminds them of who he is and who they are, and prays for his followers, both current and future. He begins the last discourse here in chapter 14 by honestly telling his disciples that he is going to die. They will no longer have him physically with them. In verses 2 and 3, Jesus reminds the disciples of something he has told them before. They will not always have him. He must go away and die. Earlier in the gospel, notably in chapters 8 and 12, Jesus had already spoken to his disciples about his death, but this reality had not settled in. Nevertheless, Jesus wants the reality of his going away to sink into the minds and hearts of his followers, because his departure is coming soon, whether they realized it or not. However, Jesus also recognized that his departure is a hard reality that will make his disciples downhearted and discouraged, even though they have not yet understood the full gravity of the situation. He knows that they are going to feel like a lost child in a crowd who doesn't know where her parents are. Jesus goes to the cross to give up his life. His disciples will feel confused and disoriented, and they might even despair. So as a preemptive move, Knowing that his disciples are soon to suffer sorrow and grief, Jesus begins to offer them comfort and hope. He starts in verse 1 by encouraging his followers not to let their hearts be troubled. By speaking in this way, Jesus seems to be assuming that the hearts of the disciples will naturally be troubled. Does that sound familiar? When you reflect on the natural condition of your heart, what are some words that come to mind? Peaceful, tranquil, settled? Grounded, confident, rooted, perhaps. But if I had to guess on average, I would think that your list would be a lot more like what mine often is. Stressed, worried, confused, distracted, hurried. It is easy to relate to the disciples in this moment. Jesus, their rabbi, whom they believe to be the promised Messiah, keeps talking about how he is going to be betrayed, how he must leave them how they can't go where he is going, how he must die. Consider the preceding paragraph in chapter 13. Despite the chapter division, our passage is closely tied to Jesus's foretelling of Judas's betrayal and Peter's denial. In what seems like one breath, Jesus predicts that one of his closest followers will betray him and his most vocal follower will vocally deny him before the following morning. And the next thing out of Jesus's mouth is, 
do not let your hearts be troubled. It's as if Jesus is looking right through them and perceiving their thoughts and fears. He is, by the way. In this moment of increasing dramatic tension, Jesus is less than 24 hours from his death. He prioritizes comforting his followers. Let us then incline our hearts and ears to the substance of Jesus' comfort. He begins by commanding them to believe in God and to believe in himself. Throughout the Gospel of John, the identity of the Father and the Son are closely linked together. It is no different here. Belief in God leads to and produces belief in Jesus. Jesus' words will comfort only those who truly believe in God and his Son. Then in verse 2, Jesus says that in his Father's house there are many rooms. This begs the question, what exactly is his Father's house and what are the rooms? Well, in the Gospel of John and really throughout the other Gospels as well, the language of my Father's house is quite loaded. Jesus uses it in nearly a one-for-one way with the temple. This appears in Luke chapter 2 when the 12-year-old Jesus tells Joseph and Mary that he was in my Father's house with the teachers of the law in the temple. Additionally, in John chapter 2, verses 16 through 19, the story of Jesus cleansing the temple of the money changers and animal keepers, Jesus refers to the temple as my father's house. And also in verse 19, Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The author of the gospel gives us even further clarification in chapter 2, verse 21, that Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body. Thus, in the Gospel of John and the wider Gospel witness, there is a strong connection between the language of my father's house with the temple and with the temple with Jesus' body. Therefore, here, it is easy to associate my father's house in John chapter 14 with the temple as well as with Jesus' body. Such imagery offers great hope for Christians as we look forward to the future temple in Revelation, which will come down to earth, where all the redeemed will worship God together in his sanctuary. However, connecting the phrase with Jesus' body is even more powerful. If my father's house is the temple, which is Jesus' body, then we don't have to only wait for a future fulfillment of the reunion of heaven and earth in the temple. We can experience the hope and fulfillment of the presence of God through the work of Christ now, through the spirit living in us. The second part of verse 2 is the many rooms. One commentator suggests the reference to the many rooms refers to it furthers the temple imagery because the Jerusalem temple would have had more rooms than any other building that a Jew would have ever been in. Additionally, the word translated rooms or dwelling places is the Greek word mone, a noun that only occurs, occurs twice in the gospel of John here. And in 1423, where it is translated home, both uses are closely tied to the presence of God living with people. Also, the verb form of this word, meno, is used often in John's gospel and is usually translated abide. This term is also a theologically significant term in the gospel, and Jesus uses it to refer both to his relationship with the Father as well as his relationship with the disciples. For example, in chapter 15, he says, abide in me and I will abide in you and abide in my love, etc., Jesus uses the language of abiding as well as temple imagery to express the idea that though he is going away, the presence of God will remain with his followers. The rooms are a place to abide with God in my father's house, which is the temple. 
Jesus then goes on to comfort his disciples in three main ways in the following verses. First, he tells his disciples there is a place for each of them. He says that in his father's house, there are many dwelling places or rooms. There isn't just one place, but many. This is great comfort considering the meaning of my father's house is the temple that we just considered. The temple represented to the Jewish people the presence of God on earth. Therefore, by associating the rooms that he is going to prepare with the temple, Jesus is saying that there is room for the disciples in the presence of God. Not only is there room in the presence of God, but Jesus says that he, the place he is going to prepare is in fact himself. Verse 3, I will come again and will take you to myself. Jesus says that he is going and coming back to take his disciples to himself. What greater comfort could he offer his disciples whom he has just told that he is leaving, but that he will bring them into his presence? Therefore, the comfort he offers to them is that there is a place for all of them, and that place is his presence. He himself is the destination of the journey. This leads us to Jesus' second comfort. He is going to prepare that place for his followers. If his presence is the place where he is going to bring his disciples, what is he preparing and why does he need to prepare it? St. Augustine helps us here. Augustine says of this passage, Let Christ go away then so that he is not seen. Let him be concealed. Let him remain concealed that faith may be exercised. Then a place is prepared if you live by faith. Let faith desire so that the place desired may itself be possessed. The longing of love is the preparation of the place. End quote. Thus, Augustine is saying Christ must go away so that his disciples can exercise faith, a faith whose end is a loving desire for the presence of Christ. He continues, for you are preparing us for yourself and yourself for us. And as much as you are preparing a place both for yourself in us and for us in you, for you have said, abide in me and I in you. Close quote. Augustine, therefore, answers both what Jesus is preparing as well as why he must prepare. He's preparing their hearts to desire the presence of Jesus because they are not yet ready. Their faith is not yet complete. He is cultivating in their hearts a longing, a longing that nothing in this world can satisfy. Finally, Jesus offers a third element of comfort to his troubled disciples. Not only is he going to prepare a place, a unique place for each of them, but he's also going to come back to fulfill this preparation. This fulfillment is summed up in verse 3. I will come again and will take you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. Only after the Holy Spirit has worked to prepare their hearts will the followers of Jesus be ready to live in his presence. Only after their longing has grown and found the, satisfaction this, in this, the satisfactions in this world wanting, will they be prepared to find satisfaction in Christ? And that is the promise of the story of the Bible. From Eden to Israel, Egypt to Jerusalem, God has been working and unfolding his purposes that his people may live with him so that he can reunite heaven and earth in a new Eden, a new Jerusalem. And this is the story of our Old Testament passage where God promised to be his presence to go with Moses and with the people of Israel. Without the presence of God, they had no hope. This is what the hearts of humanity long for. This was the hope of the tabernacle and later the temple, that God was coming to dwell with his people. But these things were only shadows of Christ, the living temple, 
which though he be killed, he will be resurrected in three days. In Jesus, the presence of the living God has entered humanity, giving humankind access to God's living and life-sustaining presence through the Holy Spirit. The hope of the restoration of heaven and earth is already breaking through into the present moment through the work of the Holy Spirit. This is the hope that there is a place for Jesus' followers, that Jesus is preparing a place for his followers by cultivating longing in their hearts, and that Jesus will take his followers to himself, the fulfillment of their longing. And like the disciples, we too face life without a physical Jesus. Even more, we've never experienced life with a physical Jesus, a human we can talk with, we can walk with and talk to and eat with and see. But the same comfort and hope that Jesus offered to his disciples, he offers to us. He has gone to prepare a place for us in his father's house, the coming temple, which is his body. Later in the New Testament, Paul and others refer to the church as Jesus' body. We who have been called by the name of Christ have a place in Jesus' body here and now. But this place is only the first fruits of what is to come. It is the foreshadowing of the coming of the presence of God in glory when he will reunite heaven and earth. According to Augustine, Jesus left his disciples in order to cultivate longing and desire in their hearts for the presence of God. C.S. Lewis echoes this idea in mere Christianity when he says, if we find in ourselves, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. When each of us looks within our hearts, we find a longing for which, at best, we get shadows and wisps of fulfillment. C.S. Lewis elsewhere says, we call these shadows and wisps of fulfillment beauty. But Lewis is quick to point out that, quote, the books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. The beauty was not in them, but it only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things the beauty, the memory of our own past are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have not yet visited. Here Lewis says that the longing deep in our heart cannot be satisfied by things of this world but they point us somewhere else. These longings and beautiful things in this world point us to the fact that Christ is coming back to take us to himself. He is preparing our hearts to receive him. In the words of Augustine, Christ is preparing a place for himself in us and a place for us in himself. How then do we begin to participate in this new life today? How do we lead into the preparatory work that Christ is doing in our hearts. The same way that Christians have prepared their hearts for the presence of Christ for centuries, by apprenticing ourselves to Christ through the spiritual disciplines. Augustine was not the first follower of Jesus to realize there was a longing in his heart that could not be satisfied by anything in this world. And he wasn't the last. In fact, that is the very premise and hope of participating in spiritual disciplines. There's a longing in our hearts that cannot be filled by food. And so we fast to acknowledge that the word of God and prayer and communion with him is sustaining bread. There's a longing in our hearts. So we try to fill it with people, but people fail us. 
And so we practice solitude and silence to listen to the voice of God who tells only truth and is the only ever faithful companion. There is a longing in our hearts that we try to fill with a career and success at work, overworking ourselves. But these things let us down and come back to us empty. And so we practice Sabbath and shape our week on the model that God has laid out for us, a model of work and rest for his glory. These are three brief examples of the ways that Christians for centuries have begun the work of preparing their hearts for Christ, have sought to find the end of the longing in their hearts for the presence of God. And these disciplines are today still the way to prepare our hearts for the presence of God. Many of us have been like Thomas in verse five, hearing the promises of Jesus, the promises of hope and comfort, yet still questioning, Lord, I do not know where you are going. How can I know the way? But Jesus is a patient teacher, and he will repeat as many times as is necessary to get it through our thick heads. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the way because in him we experience the life-giving presence and never-failing truth of God. Jesus is the prefiguring and the first fruits of the union of heaven and earth. He is the way and he is the destination. By living and leaning into the spiritual disciplines, we are following the way of Jesus. And it is only by walking in the way of Jesus that we come to the Father. And there, at the feet of the Father, the deep longing in our heart finds its fulfillment. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.